Welcome to the CPC Expedition podcast, where we explore the peaks of cutting-edge innovation in clinical research. Currently in the U.S., over 30.3 million adults have type 2 diabetes, and one in four don't even know that they have it. On today's episode, Dr. Cecilia Lo Wong is joined by Dr. William Hyatt to discuss recent breakthroughs in drug classes to treat type 2 diabetes and to discuss why SGLT2 inhibitors aren't being prescribed more in the U.S. My name is Cecilia Lo Wong. I'm a faculty member here at CPC Clinical Research. I'm an endocrinologist, and I invited Dr. William Hyatt to be with us today um, on today's podcast. I'm William Hyatt. I'm also a faculty member here at the University of Colorado in the Division of Cardiology, uh, practice vascular medicine, and I'm the chief science officer for CPC Clinical Research, which is a multinational clinical trials research organization. And we are here to talk about some exciting developments in therapy for type 2 diabetes and now actually expanding out to the cardiac population. Um, So um, there's a class of medicines that's pretty new, um, the newest class for type 2 diabetes called the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. Pretty long term. Um, We usually say SGLT2 inhibitors because it's kind of a mouthful. Um, But this class of therapies was developed, first approved back in 2013 for type 2 diabetes. And there has been some exciting data that's come out in the past few years um, showing cardiovascular risk reduction with this class. And so actually the very first trial that showed benefit um, was the EMPA-REG trial. And um, Dr. Hyatt, if you could tell us a little bit about that, because you happen to be on the advisory committee discussing approval for this um, drug for this indication a few years ago. Well, thank you. Uh, The EMPA-REG trial evaluated empagliflozin, one of the SGLT2 drugs, uh, and its effect on the risk of cardiac ischemic events in patients with diabetes who had a history of, of, of heart disease. And I would note that um, I was first introduced to these, this class of drugs serving as a member of the Endocrine and Metabolism Advisory Committee for the FDA, which Dr. Lo Wong currently serves on as well. And, and these were a, a new drug to treat diabetes with lower hemoglobin A1C. And the mechanism was actually essentially pee-out glucose. Uh, which at the time I thought was um, odd because I thought it would just cause more infections in the genital urinary tract. But when we came to this clinical trial, the results were really quite impressive. And this trial was a cardiovascular outcome trial. Uh, It had a 38% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. Uh, The effect on heart attacks and strokes was much, much less pronounced. And I think the dominant theme was this drug prevented death. And that was, was, was quite striking and something that was really the topic of discussion by the committee, which ultimately recommended to approve, and then later the FDA suddenly agreed that this drug should be approved, not just as a diabetes drug, but a drug that would actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular events, particularly cardiovascular death. And that set the stage for the other new drugs that came along, uh, Canica flows and adapical flows. And, and Dr. Lawong, do you want to comment on those drugs? Yes. So um, what we didn't know when Empareg was published is whether or not this was a drug effect or whether this was a class effect. And so, um, of course, when Empareg was published, this was worldwide shocking news. I think everyone was so excited about the results of that trial. Um, something unexpected because we had had many decades of um, work on therapies for diabetes and 
um, we know that people with diabetes are at particularly high risk for cardiovascular events and cardiovascular death. So to have a medication that could lower glucose, so improve um, glucose in diabetes as well as to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease was just um, mind-boggling. So that was really great. So then the next development was uh, the proof that canagliflozin, another drug in this class, um, also reduced the risk of cardiovascular events. And what was different about this, so this was in the Canvas set of trials, the difference was that um, the Canvas set of trials actually had a lower, um, um, lower, lower percentage of the population with established cardiovas cardiovascular disease. So Empareg was made up of almost everyone, about 99% of the population had established cardiovascular disease. In the Canvas program, it was only about two-thirds of the population. And even then, um, the Canvas program was able to show reduction in MACE events um, in, in uh, patients with type 2 diabetes with canagliflozin. And so that was, uh, this was along with cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure. So this was really kind of the next step in the development of this um, class of drugs that we were starting to think that this could be a class effect. And then the most recent development was really just um, this publication of the dapagliflozin um, uh, results, which showed that dapagliflozin in a popula population of patients with uh, only 40% with established ASCVD, um, there was also a benefit to cardiovascular risk. And this was really more cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure. Yeah, I think that... Um... It's, it's fortunate that we have information from more than one drug in this class. And since this is a, an unexpected and new finding, it's nice to have it replicated. The canagliflozin trials included with both primary and secondary prevention, so primary were people without established heart disease. And really, it did appear that, that the benefit was mainly restricted to patients with heart disease, although uh, the sponsor argued that, that it was really an overall population effect. And the FDA subsequently went ahead and approved that drug with that indication. But I think, as in many situations, uh, the higher risk you are, uh, the greater the benefit. And so I think the, the trial of the day were sort of more robust in terms of the effects on, on patients with established heart disease. You know, dapagliflozin, the other major um, finding that's come out in the recent past is that it can reduce the risk of hospitalization for heart failure even in patients without diabetes. And so this was the most recent um, publication where um, patients with or without type 2 diabetes given dapagliflozin um, demonstrate a reduced risk for hospitalization for heart failure. So maybe we're actually thinking of expanding the population beyond patients with type 2 in this diabetes therapy. Um, but I think the biggest question right now is that here we have this class of medications that reduces risk for cardiovascular events and death. And um, when we start to look at real-world evidence studies, um, we see that actually they're not being used very much. And so uh, the question is why. Um, this has been replicated over and over in various real-world evidence um, uh, analyses. And um, I think people have speculated about why this could be. And one possible reason is that, first of all, it's a relatively new class of drugs. We've only had, it, had them around for about six years, so people may not be comfortable prescribing them. And then I think that there's, uh, I think people are concerned about some of the potential side effects of them. 
And so, um, Dr. Hyatt, do you want to comment a little bit about amputations? Sure. So just to reiterate, uh, this drug class and another, GLP-1 agonists, have revolutionized the treatment of diabetes because they not only lower blood sugar, they actually reduce the risk of heart disease, which is, I think, uh, the, the ultimate goal in people with diabetes is to protect them from heart disease, kidney disease, things like that. So this drug class, the SGTL2 drugs, um, have some annoying side effects, you know, infection in the genital urinary tract and things like that. Occasionally, there's a little bit of risk of people that, that brittle diabetics may have some worse metabolic complications, but in general, they're safe drugs. There was an unexpected signal in the Kanigaflozin trials that suggested that the, that the drug was, was independently associated with an increased risk of amputation. And, and, and it, we actually had the opportunity to adjudicate those events here at, at CPC uh, further and, and, and then reanalyze the data and found that, yes, uh, the risk for amputation was increased about twofold, and it was for both major and minor, minor being mainly amputations of the toes and forefoot, major would be amputations above the ankle, so below the knee, above the knee, which is much more serious. And yet it seemed that this risk was increased um, in patients with diabetes, uh, and we couldn't quite find exactly uh, what the reason was. Although I know subsequent look at, at Dapagaflozin data, trying to ascertain this risk a bit further, and these data are still in evolution, would suggest that maybe the people at highest risk are those with wounds in their feet, uh, where you might exert caution. Uh, people with a prior amputation, history of peripheral artery disease, uh, you might be thoughtful and cautious. Otherwise, I think the drugs, drugs can be generally prescribed. So it does raise the question, doesn't it? A drug class would relatively few side effects, uh, pronounced reduction in cardiovascular risk, improved metabolic control. Why do you think the drugs are not being utilized? Right. And so I think um, part of it is the discomfort with the um, just the newness of the class of drugs. I think another is these potential side effects. And one, one thing I did want to mention is that risk for euglycemic ketoacidosis. And so for patients um, who have their doses of in insulin reduced quite a bit um, in, you know, unfortunately it's, it's used off-label in some patients with type 1 diabetes, um, but even in patients with type 2 diabetes, there's an increased risk for diabetic ketoacidosis at lower levels of glucose, and so people may not detect that DKA until a bit later, um, and the DKA actually seems to be more prolonged, and um, uh, this seems to happen also despite close monitoring. So I think that's a difficulty, although it's relatively rare. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention is that, um, you know, I, I think we do need to try to figure out what what's driving the kind of the um, people not prescribing this class of medicines. And so um, I think that uh, we've come up with some some speculation, but I think that future studies really need to look at why and how we can change that. And some of these real-world evidence studies show that uh, patients who are being prescribed this class of medicines tend to be younger, tend, tend to be healthier, and not really in the population that probably would benefit the most from the class. So I think that we do need to uh, work on trying to gather up you know, what some of these reasons are and try to target those reasons so that the drugs can be used in the right patients and used more broadly so that we can reduce cardiovascular disease risk. I would just add that, um, go back to kind of where we started, there, there are a lot of drugs, right, that, that treat diabetes. With the goal for the last many decades is to improve blood sugar control and prevent the complications, mainly 
damage to the eyes, kidneys, and nerves. But, but just diabetes control per se, historically, has not resulted in much benefit in reducing the risk of heart disease, which is the big killer in people with diabetes. Now there are two drug classes that do that. It seems odd to me that we wouldn't just abandon a lot of the older therapy and just jump to the newer drugs, right? Uh, on a background of sort of stable, generic, well-tried drugs like metformin. So it's puzzling. I've had a personal example just in the last week, a patient of mine with vascular disease. I was on a DPP-4 antagonist, and, uh, and he was a perfect candidate, and I, I just uh, switched him to an SGLT2 drug uh, and have my nurse help with the paperwork for the insurance claims and that kind of thing, and it was rejected. And so... <laughs> So, so cost and, and, and insurance reimbursement and access to drugs may still be a big problem. I think that, that the other, even, even as we sort of publish data and have new guidelines that support the use of things, when do you actually, how do you actually change physician behavior? What do you do to actually get them to say, hey, you're sitting there, there's a patient that meets this profile, high risk, here are these drugs that work. Um, why not? What's, what's preventing you from going there? And it's often just... They're busy and they're used to the practice as they always have. And that's where implementation initiatives come in that have been pioneered here uh, by, by Dr. Mark Benak, who's the executive director of this organization, to look at ways to, to better kind of engage physicians in our practices to actually get them to change their behavior. And there may be some novel interventions we can do within our electronic medical records uh, to, to actually achieve that that I think deserve further study. Because it's a shame to have drugs like this on the market and not have physicians actually use them appropriately. I completely agree um, with everything you said. Um, I do think that um, access to the medications is probably one of the major barriers as well. And so even though we have these guidelines, these professional guidelines with supported by strong evidence, um, there is difficulty having these drugs um, approved and paid for. And so cost is an issue. And um, so I think that there are, we have to target this on a number of fronts and um, adherence, you know, access and um, getting physicians to feel comfortable prescribing these. I think those are all different factors that have to be addressed. There's one other thing that I think is unique to these two drugs. They, they cause weight loss. And, and many people with type 2 diabetes are obese, overweight. And... Uh, and they both have that benefit. And so you'd think that would be an added attraction, right, for someone who can gain that, because that's an immediate reward. Well, and I think one, one other th comment I have to make at the very end is that the, the way that the professional, professional society guidelines are worded now um, is that, you know, of course, we, we prioritize patients with ASCVD or renal disease um, to receive this either the GLP-1 receptor agonists or the SGLT2 inhibitors. But I think one of the potential problems with the guidelines, the way they're written right now, is that then after that, then you kind of categorize people into, gosh, you know, if you really want to avoid hypoglycemia or if you really want to avoid weight gain, then you think about these other drugs. Well, actually the same drugs. Um, but I would argue that actually we should be trying to avoid hypoglycemia in everyone and we should be avoiding weight gain in everyone with type 2 diabetes. I really don't know why that should be a secondary goal. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't know why that is. I think um, one can only argue 
for the sulfonylureas, ureas, um, probably because we've been using them for decades, people are comfortable with them, but there are these major problems with them that we need to start to look towards the, the strong clinical data that we have for the two new classes and start using them more and using the sulfonylureas ureas less. Hey, this is Brooke Jackson, producer of the CPC Expedition podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's episode with Dr. Cecilia Lo Wong and Dr. William Hyatt. This episode is over, but check out the show notes for links to connect with us until the next episode drops. Thanks for listening.